Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to another bonus episode of Take Line. Leo Messi has left Barcelona, he's signed with Paris Saint-Germain. The European football star uh, is, his leaving Barcelona is an earthquake, one of the top three most iconic stars in sports. Uh, it is the end of an era to dig into this. I spoke with Simon Cooper, his new book, The Barcelona Complex. Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club comes out August 17th. We talk about the entire Messi saga as well as how Barcelona got to this point. So Simon, PSG has uh, recently announced the, the signing of Leo Messi. Uh, there was much fanfare, uh, some wonderful video, uh, him and his family on the field, on the pitch, excuse me. But I wonder if you could set up for, uh, you know, for our audience some of the context and what it means for Barca to lose this player. And then I guess more broadly, what Barcelona Football Club means to the region, what it means to Catalonia, what it means to Barcelona. Well, this was sort of the happiest relationship between a player and a club, I would say, in soccer history. Leo Messi comes to Barcelona age 13 from Argentina. He has a, a growth disturbance. So he's at 13, the height of a nine-year-old, and is looking like he's going to be about five foot two, three inches tall. So Barcelona agreed to pay for his course of growth hormones because he's this brilliant player. In five minutes in a trial training session, he convinces them and they pay some of the salary, uh, family a salary of something like $150,000. The whole family comes over from Argentina. They cry in the taxi on the way to the airport. They arrive in Barcelona. They don't even know it's by the sea. They're yeah. surprised to discover that. <laughs> and then in the next 20 years, this tiny kid grows into... There have been great players in every generation, but the thing about Messi is that he's great every time. Every three days, he's great. He's just like a machine of greatness. And he... You know, he gets a wife, three sons, and they live in this small town near the beach, not even on the beach, in this mansion. And in California, you know, a kind of regular millionaire might have, not a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> and every three days he commutes to Barcelona, he plays the best football anyone's ever seen, and then he commutes back home the empty highway. So he, they win everything. This second city of this mid-sized, not very wealthy European country becomes the biggest sports club in the world, higher revenues than any U.S. sports club at their peak in 2018. And, you know, it's first, beautiful. First, first team uh, over a billion euro mark in terms uh, of A in billion, terms of billion dollar mark in terms of revenue, yeah, which yeah. no sports club in any club, yeah. in any sport had achieved before. So, you know, this is sort of the most beautiful story in soccer. And for about five years, let's say, they have this perfect team, Messi, and the Spanish generation that wins the World Cup of 2010. A lot of those guys are playing for Barcelona. And better yet, they've come up through the academy. And what is it? So they, they, all these 
guys, you know, Messi and Gerard Piquet, who's still in the Barcelona team, who's won everything with Barcelona, they were playing together in the Barcelona youth teams age 13 with this other kid, Chess Fabregas, other 13-year-old, who also won the World Cup with Spain. So it just, it just couldn't a, be a better as story. An, as an Arsenal supporter, there's, there's a bit of bittersweet. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a little bittersweet. It's okay. Uh, and then very briefly, you asked about what does it mean for Barcelona, for the region? Well, Catalonia is a region in Spain that, you know, for many Catalans, it should have its own state. It should be a separate country. And it hasn't had that possibly ever, depending on how you count it. And so what they have instead of a state is the FC Barcelona. So they pour their passion and their nationalism, which other nations pour into a nation state. Here they pour it into a sports club, not just a soccer club, because there's a very serious basketball wing, handball wing, and so yeah. on. Yeah, and 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 I guess it, more specifically as well, there was um, uh, during the Franco years, there was a there was a concerted effort. Is that right to kind of repress both? Uh, strongholds of republicanism that uh, that emerged during the Spanish Civil War and uh, ancillary to that, the Catalonian identity, which was seen as kind of part and parcel with that, right? And then, and then FC Barcelona became this kind of embodiment, a, a place where people felt they could express their desire to be their own people to, uh, you know, this lost hope of a republic in Spain, et cetera, et cetera. Would you say that that, that is correct? I think it's both true and there's a lot of myth as well. So yes. in the book, I try and disentangle <laughs> this. And yes, yeah. Franco, you know, as you say, was this brutal dictator. Spain was going to be this state where it was only Spanish, only Spanish was spoken. You weren't allowed to speak Catalan on the street. There were signs up Spain saying, speak Christian, not Catalan. And the in the latter Franco years, this starts to disintegrate the late 60s, early 70s. And in the Camp Nou, in the stadium, is the first big public place where they have announcements over the speaker in Catalan, where people wave Catalan flags, where the, the captain in the early 70s is wearing a Catalan flag as his armband. And so, yeah, I mean, the FC Barcelona club becomes this kind of anti-Franco resistance place. But, you know, the, the Catalans like to present themselves as the anti-Franco resistance and Madrid, the city of Franco and Real Madrid, the club of Franco. It's totally unfair. I mean, Madrid was also a mm. Republican city in the Civil War. Uh, Real Madrid was run by a kind of anarchist collective during the Civil War. Madrid and Barcelona both fought against Franco. So it's unfair in this kind of Catalan fairy tale to present them as the only good guys and Real Madrid as the bad guys. <laughs> um, okay, so that is the kind of cultural context. Uh, what about the the economic context? Because I, th I think uh, fans of American sports uh, uh, would be quite surprised at the way that many English, many, excuse me, many international soccer clubs are run and, and specifically the way the kind of ownership structure uh, that is present at, at Barcelona. Yeah, I had this weird experience once. I was at Barcelona years ago with Seymour Hirsch, Cy Hirsch, the, you know, legendary yeah. investigative reporter. And we were talking to the Len president, who's now again the president, Juan Laporta. And Cy Hirsch says to Laporta, so you're the owner then? And Laporta's <laughs> very taken aback. And of course, Cy was thinking in American terms, the president is the owner usually. Yeah, yeah. And um, Laporta said, no, I'm not the owner. The fans, the socies, the 150,000 members, we are all the owners. The, this is not a club that you can buy and sell. This is not just not like the Americans. It's not like Chelsea. It's not like Manchester United or Liverpool. This is a really just a kind of local club. 
if you become a member, you are one of the people who own it, but you can never sell it. So it's not really a property. Uh, so how then have we come to this? A billion dollars in revenues, richest club in the world, richest sports team in the world, a decade plus of of shattering victories. Um, the the greatest run I think we could say that we've ever seen in sports, period. Not just the winning, but the kind of uh, style and panache with which they won. There was a real philosophy that felt organic that that had been in place and had grown um, over the decades and now is seeming to flower into this magnificent thing. How have we come to this now where, where they've had to sell their, their, their talisman? Well, firstly, yeah. I mean, somebody asked me yesterday, what's your book really about? And I said, really, it's about the beauty of the best that humans can create. It's about genius yeah. and, uh, and just humanity at its best is, is that FC Barcelona team. And I know this sounds overly poetic, but after all the rubbish we've been through in recent years with Trump yeah. and COVID and climate change yeah. and Brexit, it's such a joy for me to plunge into all that. How did they get to this? When you're number one, you stop thinking. You know, the famous Avis commercial, when you're, we're number two, we try harder. That's exactly right. <laughs> so Barcelona were number one. They were playing this beautiful football. They had this perfect youth academy. So what does everyone in sports do? Everyone in sports copies the winner. Everyone copies mm. the number one. So all these clubs like Liverpool and Bayern Munich, they were visiting the youth academy. They were hiring their coaches. They were trying to play the Barcelona way on the field. And everybody overtook them. The other big clubs overtook them. And Barcelona became lazy and backward. And then they blew all this money because when money comes in, you, you, you know, when it's flowing in every day, you spend it much more freely. So Messi's dad is asking for a pay rise for his son almost every, you know, every few months. Sure, why not? We've got all this money. Let's give it to him. Uh, you know, the club you're trying to buy, Usman Dembele from, says, actually, we want double from what you want to pay. You say, sure, why not? we got this money. We'll pay you double. No problem. And at the end, you find you have a debt of $1.4 billion. And Messi alone was earning like $150 million a year, which is more than double, I think, the next paid player in soccer. That's more than most teams make in revenue. Yeah, he was earning what a team earns, yeah. <laughs> what a top team earns. Um a top, yes, a top team. You know, again, as an Arsenal supporter, I look at 150 in, in revenues and I think, wow, that'd be great. Um, I, it's, it seems to me that this is kind of, if not the end point, but an inflection point and a movement in football that has been underway for a while, which is the kind of um, uh, the unforeseen effects of massive amounts of money pouring into the sport from from, from different areas. Messi has now left. Uh, Barcelona was unable to sign him, and he goes to the only club that is really capable of signing, which is the uh, Qatari-owned uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Um, is, is there a way back from, for Barcelona from this? Is there, obviously, with, with uh, uh, Laporta coming back into the presidency, it would seem that there is a kind of attempt to, to re-engage with their core philosophy. Can it happen? I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, a couple of years ago when I began doing the book before the pandemic, when they still looked like the best team yeah. in the world, early 2019, there were executives at the club who said to me, you know, we might become like Manchester United after Alex Ferguson. So we don't really win prizes anymore when Messi goes, but we'll still be a big club, global huge revenues, and we can live with that. That's the benign scenario. 
they knew, you know, one guy said to me, after Messi, you see the desert, you see darkness. He said this two years ago. Now, that might happen, but more dangerous is the Leeds United scenario of 20 years ago where yeah. you you bought all these players for too much money, you have to sell all your good players, you have enormous debts, and Leeds ended up getting relegated. I don't think it's going to get that bad for Barcelona, but it could get pretty bleak and dark. I mean, the other big clubs are circling around the few Barcelona players that people actually want to buy, people like Pedri yeah. and Frenkie de Jong. <laughs> yeah. And I can imagine Bayern Munich coming in in a few months saying, you know that kid Pedri, he's a good player, right? I think we can help you out of your financial problem. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, uh, there's, there'll be no shortage of clubs that'll take some uh, measure of delight in doing that. I think that um, there is something darkly ironic, right, about Messi, who played for a club that uh, famously had no sponsor, that had uh, that had a war UNICEF across its uh, chest as a, as a kind of. Um, display of the humanitarian cultural values that the club embodied and now going to PSG, uh, again, owned by uh, the nation of Qatar. Uh, the ruling family the, of Qatar. The ruling say. family of Qatar. Uh, all the uh, human rights abuses that come that come to mind when we mention that. Uh, there is something kind of like darkly ironic in that, Right. Yeah, I mean, look, I've lived in Paris 20 years. We're now going to spend a year in Spain, but I, I, I'm a Parisian. My kid, I, I'm not a Paris fan, but my kids are. And yeah. I sometimes feel that Paris Saint-Germain is unjustly maligned. It's a real club. It's 50 years old. I know that's not old by football standards, but there are millions of people in the Paris region, 12 and a half million people live there, who love Paris yeah. Saint-Germain, who are as mad about Paris Saint-Germain as anyone in London or in Los Angeles is about Arsenal. It's a real club with a history and it represents not really the city so much, but the the suburbs, the region, the poorer parts. Yes. And yes, I mean, the Qataris um, run it and they're using it to sports whilst their reputation. So we don't think of all those construction workers, for example, who died building World Cups or those people who are kept in barracks and uh, have their passports taken away while they're working in Qatar. But, yeah. you know, Barcelona was also sponsored by Qatar. The Barcelona, I think, you, 10 years ago, I'd have said to you, yeah, you know, Barcelona is more than a club. It, it does represent these values of playing with UNICEF on the chest. Now I think Barcelona is just another club. It's true. I, I, again, it just leads me back to the, to the conversation about the money. Uh, you know, this arms race seems to have no end. We've, we've reached the point now, again, where the ruling family owns, uh, owns a team. Uh, if... if um, it, it could. How will this? What is the end point in this? At what point financial fair play is is an attempt to kind of rein in the amount of money and the excesses uh, that have been heaped upon the sport? But it feels as if um, this fusion of of you know of mass capitalism and sport, there's something untoward about it, isn't there? I mean, you say mass capitalism. I would disagree. I would say, look, Barcelona is not a business. They don't care about right. making a profit. Correct. Nobody, nobody does. And Paris Saint-Germain is not a business. They don't care about making a profit. The owners would love to lose a billion a year <laughs> uh, on Paris if it meant that they could buy, you know, sort of the world's best team. They, they're pretty. Their budget is to lose something like three hundred million dollars this euros this year, which they're allowed to do because of the pandemic. UEFA's relaxed its financial fair play rules, so the Qataris don't care. I mean, look, if you own ten percent of the world's oil and gas reserves 
you're very happy to blow a few hundred million, you know, which is nothing, which is peanuts to you. It's like buying a cup of coffee on having Messi, Neymar and Mbappe in the same attack. So, I, you know, clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United are trying to make a profit. They're run by Americans who come out of American sport. American sport has aimed to be profit-making, sometimes is. And that's what those American owners are about. Arsenal as well. And they make profits. It's not huge. It's not a huge business. But, you know, it's profit-making. But most of soccer isn't like that. You know, very, very few soccer clubs even even want to make a profit. Um, so you mentioned that PSG... Uh, losing, losing, uh, you know, boatloads of money on on this team. How are they getting around their own FFP rules? Um, the, the FFP is is the reason why Barcelona and, and and Leo Messi could not come to an agreement. They were not allowed to come to an agreement. Um, why is how how is how is PSG getting around this? Well, uh, Barcelona couldn't come to an agreement with Messi because of the Spanish league's rules. And the Spanish league said, look, this is just insane. You're spending more than your entire revenues on salaries. And even without Messi, they're spending something like 95% of their revenues and salaries. So the Spanish league said, look, we're projecting forward. You can't do this. And the other thing is that at Barcelona, the rules of Spanish football is that if you are the director and the directors and the president and you lose, let's say, $100 million, you have to pay that $100 million out of your own pocket. That's that's an amazing that that is an amazing uh, detail that yeah. I think would again would shock American fans. Yeah, and it shocks the directors. I mean, one guy when I was covering the presidential <laughs> elections this spring, I interviewed a guy who's waiting for one of the campaigns, and he said, "You know, I'm not really sure we want to win because you're going to take over a club that's going to make losses." And he said, "Look, I don't want to lose my house. You could literally mm. lose your house because you know these are not billionaires we're talking about. So you know." Um, Financial fair play, that's, that was the question. So UEFA, look, every, every club lost money during the pandemic. Not their fault. Right. You know, uh, soccer is in part, it's an events business. You couldn't have events. So they all lost money. So UEFA said, you know, we're going to relax the rules for a year or two. You just have to not make a big loss over four years. And so Paris Saint-Germain said, yeah, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll take that on. We'll worry about that when the time comes. And of course, they have about eight squad players they'd be happy to sell. And to be fair to them, a lot of their squad players are very high value. Someone like Julian Draxler, the German, you know, he's not going to be a first team player for PSG, but there are a lot of clubs in Europe who would happily play, pay, you know, $30 million for Draxler. Um, something as, as, as earth shaking as, as losing Leo Messi, um, creates a lot of blame and in your book you, you I think you do a very good job of of picking out uh, the many different reasons that many. Barcelona finds itself in this place there is there is you know much like the the club is uh, shared among its shareholders I think the blame for this is shared in in many different ways but uh but former president Joseph Maria Bartomeu I think comes in at least or is viewed as by many the kind of central figure whose presidency uh, ushered in this kind of um, dissipation of, of Barcelona's shine, its power. And, and um, he resigned in 2020. How much blame would you lay it at Bartomeu's feet? I feel really conflicted here because Bartomeu was yeah. the guy who said, okay, we're going to open our doors to Simon. He can yes, hang he around did. here and interview <laughs> yeah. people. He was always yeah. very nice to me. He's a very kind, friendly guy. He should never have been president of a big soccer club. I mean, he very typical of the kind of Barcelona elite. He has a family company. I think his dad started it. They make the jet bridges that you walk from the plane to the terminal. 
you never think about the jet bridge, but Bartomeu's company makes them, and there's a lot of money in that. So he's a rich guy, and the previous president, Roselle, had to resign in a scandal, and Bartomeu sort of becomes the accidental president. Then they win the Champions League, he's re-elected, of course, and so he's six years in the job. And the thing is, he had no idea either about soccer or about the soccer business. And when, I mean, this keeps happening at Barcelona, these guys come in from ordinary business, and then you meet the agents, and the agents yeah. kind of tear these guys to shreds. The agent <laughs> says, yeah, you're going to give my guy a 50% pay rise, or the other club says, uh, you're going to pay double what you wanted for our player. And Bartomeu thinks, yeah, okay. And then you end up with this. And he sacked five sporting directors, so he didn't have a, a kind of regular right-hand man or woman. Uh, one way that, you know, you, you would imagine that uh, Barca would try to rebuild is uh, to recapture something of the way that it, that it got to the top of the mountain, which is La Masia, another golden generation. Is one out there? Can they, can they, can they do the thing that they, that they did previously, which is find a handful of the most iconic and creative players ever, ever birthed into uh, world athletics. You know, the youth coaches I spoke to at the Messiah, and I, there's a lot in the book about what went wrong with the Messiah. They said, look, there will never be a generation like that. In the whole of soccer history, no club is ever going to get a generation of, say, seven or eight players who are yeah. the core of the world champions of 2010 plus Lionel Messi. It's just not going to happen. Nobody will do that. And the problem for Barcelona is because everybody copied them. Everyone became the Messiah. So I was interested watching England this summer at the Euro. You see these England players, the type that England have never produced before, little guys who can pass and play football. Um, Sacco, Jadon Sancho, Jack Grealish, yeah. um, Phil Foden didn't have a great Euro, but you know yeah. those, these guys are Barcelona players, little yeah. guys who pass. And the reason English academies began to produce them in the last 15 years, they, they went to Barcelona broadly. Spain became the model, Barcelona became the model. And they said, okay, we're not going to pick the biggest kids who can kick the ball furthest and tackle harder stage 10. We're going to pick the people who can actually play soccer. And so when everyone becomes the Masia, the Masia loses its lead. And Barcelona was being copied, but Barcelona wasn't keeping up. It was not sort of watching other clubs' academies. So I, the, the Masia is never going to be that. I mean, the best player they have now in coming up, Bedri, he's not from the mm. Masia. He grew up on the Canary Islands. In in America here, uh, particularly in the in the in basketball, there is a lot of anxiety about the way players are uh, taking control of their careers and moving to teams that are in cities that are glamorous, that have nice weather, that have big fan bases, and kind of eschewing these smaller markets. Uh, when I look at uh, football and I think, man, what would it be like to be a a supporter of, of Nice or or Montpellier and just know for a fact that we're not even going to get in sniffing distance of of a of anything of a cup of the title of it? Is there a way to kind of to even out the playing field? in a way that creates more drama, that allows the supporters of these smaller clubs to feel like this is all worth something, isn't it? Um, I mean, firstly, weaponizing your weather. Barcelona have done that. I mean, it's, just, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's I think it's my favorite city in Europe. I've, I've loved it to bits. So that helps. I mean, nobody wants yeah. to leave Barcelona. If you're in the, the rule of thumb has been for 20 years, maybe 30, if you're in the Barcelona first team, you don't want to leave. Other clubs came to accept that. And it's partly because it's a great place. 
But can can we get small towns winning championships? I don't think we need to. I think football has an ecosystem where every club has its function. So the function mm. of Manchester United or Real Madrid is to play for the big prizes, to win titles. And the function of Hartlepool is right. to maybe get promotion a division and their fans are happy. Function of Newcastle is maybe you win, you know, you win a, a cup or you beat Manchester United at home. And, you know, Newcastle, they typically have 50,000 people in the stadium. They haven't won the league, I think, for 75 years. So those fans are not stupid. They know <laughs> longer than 75 years. Those fans know we're never going to win the league. In my lifetime, we're never going to win the league. But I'm not coming for that reason. So every club at every level of football has its function. They don't actually have to win stuff. Uh Simon, the book is called The Barcelona Complex. It is out August 17th, anywhere that you get your books. Uh, it is a fascinating read about a fascinating club uh, and a fascinating time. Thank you so much for joining Take Line. Thank you enormously. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.